<laughs> Take that, James Cameron. Marina's bigger than yours, and I got more gladiators. Hello and welcome to episode 51 of the world famous Ted Swordology podcasts. <laughs> I'm J-Rod, the future human. Um, and I'm Kylo Ren. Good one. I can't do that uh, voice, can I? It's really, a bit, it's really, really quite difficult. No, I'm not even going to try. Um, so, uh, like, let's just go, right? Yeah, follow up. Go. Follow up or... Just Oh, two-minute rule. Keep an eye on the clock. Two-minute rule. No long, droning sections of te- of discussion from you, please. <laughs> and the drinking game, the patented Keezy Nicklin drinking game. <sighs> is, uh, uh, I've used up most of my alcohol after <laughs> Christmas. Um, so, a couple of things from last time. Uh, hello, regular listeners. And uh, how's, it going with, how's it going with uploading those transcripts, John? Oh, it's great. Well, actually, I okay. don't know. I haven't checked. We told people <laughs> to go to the, the wiki, didn't we? Uh, okay. There's a couple of... Uh, I think it was... There was an episode of the podcast where we were talking about uh, the difference between the Pleistocene world and the modern world. And we were discussing... It might have been last episode. It might have been episode 47. I don't really know. But... um we were talking about the um, the idea that there was like uh, that is the modern world really that different in terms of megafaunal diversity and stuff, and we had quite a discussion on that. And I just want to add one thing to that, and it's mostly because I'm reading a very depressing book called The Unnatural History of the Sea, which is all about the decline of fisheries by uh, Professor Callum Roberts. The Unnatural History of the Sea, the Past and Future of Humanity and Fishing. And I want to say, when it comes to when it comes to the uh, the shape of the world going back a few tens of thousands of years, and now one of the primary differences isn't necessarily species level differences, although to a degree that is the case. It's also the sheer number of animals shifting baseline syndrome. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the world, so the thing, I just feel that in this, that people that, that remember this discussion we were having about extinctions, about the changes in like percentages and stuff and things, is one of the things we didn't mention we should have done is that go back prior to the agricultural revolution and the world was full of animals, full of animals. And today, even species that aren't, even species that are still around, their numbers are like, you know, 1% of what they were. Mm. And it's just this book, seriously, The Unnatural History of the Sea, is just incredible. There's so many historical accounts demonstrating, and not just not just historical accounts, but also, you know, evidence from, you know, midden piles and all this kind of stuff. Um, we know that, you know, in t- today in a modern sea, there might be like thousands of turtles. It looks like there's a lot, you know, you talk about going back just a couple of centuries and there are millions of the things millions of them and that was the case for whales and seals and fish and birds and all these things and so so that's something we should have mentioned i thought mm-hmm. shifting baseline syndrome you look concerned what no that sounds oh, that's yeah. just your normal face all right yeah um, 
couple of other things. Really quick. God, don't let me talk for that long. Uh, yeah, so I'm just going to say that when we were talking about the uh, ostrich dinosaur with a fuzz on it, Mickey Mortimer, thanks. Yeah, loads of comments on ostrich dinosaur taxonomy and why some names are dropping out of fashion and stuff. Yeah, I'm not going to go into the details there. It'll take too long. Snake tool use by Irene Douse, right? What she was actually talking about was... Uh, a, a case where a snake in captivity was seen to use moss to construct a structure that looked like a nest. So mm. this hasn't been verified, hasn't been published, but um, it's not... I don't think that's tool use making a nest. I mean, tool use is obviously using a thing to do a job, uh, and building a nest is not tool use. But um, still intriguing, and I, I think that would be a first. And... In a discussion I had, I think it was episode forty-nine, where we were talking about it was a, a response for it was a response. It was a catch for question answer. The question was from Tristan Rapp, and it was about why no giant animals in the Permian. And then this discussion about what there was in the Permian, blah blah blah. I spoke about these studies to do with changing fauna, the, the compositions of faunas. I got completely confused, and I mixed up two different studies by Mike Benton and. Those of you who know this stuff will know that, and I'll stop there because, again, it will take too long to talk about it. So there you go. That'll do. F you. Done. In the bag. Right. In the bag. <laughs> Just because I don't have the agenda open. Back of the net, as you say. <laughs> okay. Do you love me some football simulators? <laughs> yeah, we love the footballs. Um, okay. Uh, news from the world of news. Aha. News from the world of news. Now... <laughs> Anything you want to add here? Uh, no. All right. Do you know what this is? Uh, IZN. Yes, this is International Zoo News, which is like standard toilet reading here at Tetsu Towers. And the current epi- uh, issue, <laughs> the current issue, <laughs> the current episode. It's, <laughs> it's, like, it's like an episode, but it's made of paper. What's it called? Um, the current issue has got this very interesting article by Francesco Nardelli. A new colobini, so a colobine monkey from the Sundayak region, the golden crowned langur, Presbytus John Aspinalli. So, this is somewhat unprecedented, but this issue of International Zoo News includes the publication of a new species of monkey called the golden crowned langur, named after John Aspinall, who those of you who know anything about the zoo world, conservation world, will know who John Aspinall is. And um, while in... Uh, oh, dear. Uh, the, these animals were in captivity. In Indonesia, the UK, and the USA, uh, Nardelli um, photographed these monkeys in cages that don't correspond to any known monkey species. They're clearly presbytis, as leaf monkeys, langurs. And uh, they got this, like, overall black ground colour and then this kind of, like, golden halo and everything. So they don't match anything. Seem to be something completely new. So, But name, naming a new species in, I, in IZN, or IZN, is rather odd decision to make. But uh, I... And then this is one of a whole list of animals, and in particular primates, that have been named without there being actual type specimens, without there being voucher specimens. Right. It's named on the base of photographs and people saying they've seen an animal. Um, and, yeah, like I say, there's a list of monkeys this has been done to. Others so, include the Blanca. 
And when you say in captivity, I presume you don't mean zoos. I mean for sale in markets and things. Right. So how do we know that it's not one of the more well-known um, wild ones just bred to look strange? Because obviously that can happen. Yeah, that is a we thing. We don't go naming thousands of species of dogs because, man, I've seen them. Right? <laughs> John once saw a dog in a jumper. Um, <laughs> I thought it was a werewolf. <laughs> uh, um, uh, well, the reason I'm talking about this is not because, not just because it's a new species of monkey, because that's yeah. not a tremendously big deal. Several new species of monkeys named every year. It's because of the the the, the, the two pronged debate that's emerged. One of them is. Are you should you really be naming species when you haven't got type specimens? This comes up every single time someone does this. There's this famous case to this this, this African bird, the Buluberti Bubu. It's a Somalian uh, bush shrike, and they kept it in captivity and they took samples from it, like blood and feathers, and but they released it. Mm-hmm. And as a consequence, its scientific name is like Laniar- Laniarius. Libertarius or something, you know, the bird, the one we freed. And people have done this with primates. It's like, well, we don't want to kill it, um, especially when it might be endangered. And this, this, all, this also links back to the discussion we were having about the moustache kingfisher on Bougainville Island, um, whenever that was, a couple of episodes back. Um, so one of the things people have said about this new monkey is what you do in naming a monkey based on photographs, there's that issue. But then the second issue is, yeah, are these even a thing? Now, they look morphologically distinct compared to other presbytus monkeys, in particular other monkeys of this kind. that They have like their, their, their head hair comes to a point, and these it doesn't. It's like a rough. So they do look distinct. But one of the arguments is that, <laughs> that, that unscrupulous collectors have obtained presbytus monkeys of a known species and dyed them. <laughs> and that's actually been argued that these are that this new species is not a new species, it's another one. Because if you look at the ones that exist, there's like all kinds of colour patterns, there's like golden yeah. ones and showing John plates of monkeys there. Um Yeah. Is it did they just get one and paint it? Get a whole bunch of them, paint them. And Nardelli says, No way, no way, man, they were for real. But um this is unresolved and we can't go and test it. So there you go, that's all I have to say about that. Mm. Right. I, yeah, I think, but I think there is a big difference between um, taking blood samples with a specimen, studying it relatively closely, and releasing it to naming species based on photographs. It's it's also it's of great interest to me because, of course, it borders on the cryptid thing, doesn't it? There's this. There has been this this uh, push from people that. Uh, endorse the existence of certain mystery animals, like mm. Bigfoot and sea monsters and stuff, they've said that, ah, we've got this large body of eyewitness accounts. Surely it's only a matter of time before we find it, as find, you know, get a specimen, so we should act now to name it. So you have people naming Sasquatch, Yeti, the Loch Ness Monster has been given a scientific name. Bernard Hooverman's is several sea serpents were all given scientific names. And of course today, scientific belief uh, whether that's the right or wrong term depends very much on your opinion, but scientific endorsement for these animals is minimal at best. So the idea that you'd get, you know, the, the, the Loch Ness Monster paper was published in Nature in 1975. They named the Loch Ness Monster Nesoteris rhombopteryx. And they said, we need to do that because it needs to have conservation status. 
And it's this is kind of similar to that. It's like you say, yeah, I saw the Loch Ness Monster. I know it's real. Mm. It's not that different from saying, yeah, but I was in the jungle and I saw that monkey. I know that monkey's real. It's like there's, there is overlap between them. They're not, not exactly the same. But, no. And yeah. I think there's – but there's two – there's – in some ways they're opposite because, okay, if you really see something that is clearly like Nessie, right, it couldn't be anything else, then that is a new species. If you see a great right. big long neck, say, marine reptile, then we're going to say, well, yes. And it, say, for some reason, this is beyond dispute. It was seen. It was captured on thousands of video cameras or something like this, and it was obvious yeah. what it was. Then that is a new species. However, yep. even like these monkeys, right? Well, they are morphologically somewhat distinct, although you'd probably have to know your monkeys to tell the difference. But does that mean anything? Is that just in a genetic quirk that's been brought out? Is it just because they've been painted? It's not clear that they're a new species, even based on the evidence that is apparent, right? Yeah. So in yeah, some ways yeah. they're opposite. In some ways, it, well, we think that it's more likely that this is an existing species and you're misidentifying it versus this is, well, it's made up or you're thinking it's something completely different to what it is. Yes, it's a, it's yes. a log, and you're thinking it's a, it's a <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, a sea a, monster. Yeah, I, I I absolutely agree with you, but there is some overlap between where we draw the line as to what we're prepared to accept as goes, uh, what what we what we are going to put a name on because yeah, <clears throat> and having just I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but having just mentioned that scientific name for the Loch Ness monster. Those of you who have heard this thing about it being an anagram, that is all completely false. That's just that was a coincidence that it was a, that it was an anagram. And we can say that because the Scott and Rhines, the two guys who came up with this name Nesteris Rumboptrix, they weren't making it up as a joke. They honestly did believe that the Loch Ness monster was for real, as is verified by the many other things they published on the Loch Ness monster. Um, okay, we should move on. Mm. Two more things: news of the world of news. Draco Raptor, this, uh, if you live in the UK, as John and I do, there's this little Welsh dinosaur that's uh, found from the uh, lower Jurassic, and it's a big deal. It's like really quite nice. I don't want to say complete, but it's like, you know, m- about half the skeleton, like 40% of the skeleton from, I think, Lavenock Point in South Wales, Glamorganshire, I think. Um, Which for our non uh, paleo listeners is a lot. Forty yeah, percent yeah. of a skeleton doesn't sound great, does it? But it is. It's actually uh, pretty good. Uh, that's good. Yeah. yeah. So Draco Raptor, Hanning, Hanning. Oh, I'm going to be Hanniganai. I think it is Hanniganai. It should be Hanniganorum because it's named after these two brothers who found it. But so well done, Steve Vidovich and Dave Martell and colleagues, uh, my former uh, group associates. Uh, the, but the, you know the thing that makes this study really interesting is that that Steve Vidovich has probably single-handedly invented a new convention for conveying the scale of dinosaurs. Yes. And that is the Pratt Index. So it's now industry standard to have a Chris Pratt (laughs) (laughs) silhouette next to your dinosaur. So I think think they've got got this in the paper. I'm not 100% sure, but I've certainly seen it online. And... um, at Wikipedia, the dinosaur silhouettes use either Pioneer Dork as scale. Pioneer Dork, you know, is the the the, the extremely 
well-proportioned yeah. human male who's standing like this yeah. from the Voyager plate. Normally next to his also well-proportioned female companion who doesn't have, I don't know, Pioneer Dorcas. But, so it's either Pioneer or Catherine Zeta-Jones used the scale bar. But now they've removed all that and I think the whole of Wikipedia's been redone with a frat. <laughs> Chris Pratt as a scale bar, which uh, it's only a matter of time before this is picked up by one of the one of those parasitic media companies that writes online articles about other online articles. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, so that's that. That's that. Good. That's that. And the other thing I'll talk about is cats. Cats. Right? The world of cats. How many cats in the world, domestic, domestic cats in the world, do you reckon there are? Aww. We established in a previous podcast, okay, there's about, currently about 24 47. billion. 47. There's a bit more. It's about 500 million oh, yeah. domestic cats in the world. So we've just been having a discussion on Twitter. Who would, who would win in a, a fight between all the chickens or all the cats in the world? 24 billion chickens versus 500 million cats. Back of the envelope calculation, cat, uh, chickens win. Chickens win. Chickens. So, well, hmm. <laughs> uh, so there's some pretty, yeah. But what proportion of those chickens can actually, you know, get up and walk? That's, that is a good point. Because, well, you know, chicken... like a big, proper, badass chicken, then maybe. But um, yeah. if yeah. it's just uh, those, I... like, those big, fat waddlers that are in cages, they're, like, they're just cats that kill hundreds of them. I thought, that's, I thought that as well. So that's like, there's millions of, <laughs> millions of chickens will die. But if there's 24 billion to play with, come on. So each cat it only has takes... to kill 50 chickens. Well, and how many cats could do that? Have you seen this video? Well, how much time of... have they got? Well, how long does a battle last? I mean, <laughs> oh, I say everyone this... just has to go. With, so, but I don't know how you enforce the fighting because the chickens are going to run away. Have you seen the video of the crane that accidentally flies into the tiger enclosure in some Chinese zoo? No. Okay, there's like three tigers hmm. and one crane. Yeah. And. You and I know that a crane is quite a badass animal, but most people think, oh, a crane is just a crappy little skinny thing with long legs. Well, that crane single-handedly kills all three tigers. No, it fights them off. It does fight them off. They, they dare not tackle it. So uh, that's my model. <laughs> yeah, but the problem is that the chickens have to kill the cats, and let's face it, they're never going to kill a cat, are they? Uh, a small one. Kittens. <laughs> anyway... Taking us down the some cats, strange... The cats, the cats are going to win. The weird world of John taking us down some strange pathway. <laughs> Look, I so, didn't come up with this stupid topic. <laughs> <laughs> so, cat domestication. Now, cat domestication is rather messy, and as is often the case with That's domestic... That's because you're not doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> you're just um, like, outside! <laughs> they understand English. Don't meow at me, put your collar back on. Um... So, have they been? Were they domesticated once, or have they been domesticated several times independently from different wild populations of different quote subspecies of the wild cats, like Felis sylvestris, Felis libica type things? This is this is an ongoing controversy in the world of cat domestication. However, it's generally thought that cat domestication happened in the Levant region and Egypt, kind of around there. The oldest domestic cats at the moment are from Cyprus, and they date to about 10,800 to 8,000 years before present. And what? Is that? So, no. oh, so. <laughs> How many year? 
Carry on. What has some weird? So the, the the Egyptian cats, the oldest Egyptian cats, like the the famous like old paintings, they're like five thousand five hundred years old. So so that's like where cat domestication sort of thought of happened. But there's a 2014 paper by Hu et al. where they say that in China they've got domestic cat records dating back five thousand five hundred years. So they're saying, oh, we've got like possibly an independent origin of domestic cats mm-hmm. about about the same age as like the oldest Egyptian stuff in China. Well, ha-ha, ha-ha. New paper published, plus one, Vignet et al. I'm probably pronouncing that name incorrectly, V-I-G-N-E. Um, they show that these ancient Chinese domestic cats are not domestic cats. They, well, they're not Felis Silvestris, Felis Catus, Felis Libica cats. They're leopard cats, Prinolurus bengalensis. These animals, these Things are only known from bits of jaws and stuff. We're not talking about whole specimens. But they're leopard cats and they're kind of uh, like semi-domestic or possibly domestic. So people actually seem to have had some sort of like commensal relationship with leopard cats, uh, another species of cat, which intuitively immediately is kind of surprising because it's like because we always think of all domestic cats as being catus sylvestris libica type libica type things yeah and these are not but on the other hand it's not surprising because we know that the small cats you know they're so samey that they're kind of all like pre-adapted for domestication you can say the same for like small members of the dog family that sort of thing so so there you go right i'll stop there yeah still pretty interesting okay is that is that um Yep, that's that's the end of news from the world of news. News, news from the world of John Darren. Uh, it's just it's all about fish. So, mostly, it's not well, not completely about fish. That's the last of the the last of the Overlandarians. Just finished drawing those. Yep. So Twenty twenty one Overlandarian lineages about to draw. Oh God. That's not that's not for the tattoo podcast. That's fish. <sighs> Take it to your fish podcast. <laughs> right. Cash for questions. Yes. Cash for questions. Cash for questions. Right. So this one's from Jonathan Mitchell, and he asks, given that tool use has been documented in birds and reptiles, how common might it have been amongst non-bird dinosaurs? Is there any plausible fossil scenario in which the evidence of tool use could be preserved? Well... Um, so, good question. Has been considered before. We actually have an illustration in the All Your Yesterday's book, uh, put together by Memo Kozman, but including the, the works of diverse artists. Speculative stuff, where somebody has drawn, I think it's a Ginfengopteryx, so a truodontid type manoraptoran. They've shown that using a stick to remove an insect larva from bark. Um, and I think there's a few things like that where people have shown, like, manoraptorans, you know, using twigs as toys and that sort of thing. So given that, um, yes, given that there's alleged tool use in living crocodiles and alligators, given that tool use of a saw is is not, well, I was going to say not uncommon. That's, that's a bit too... That's overdoing it. I would say, known. given that it's been, <laughs> given that it's known in such birds as passerines, uh, uh, parrots, and 
birds of prey, as in like uh, use of use of stone anvils and things in vultures and stuff. Um, some of those birds, like okay, if it was just crows and parrots doing the tool use, then I think we'd say, oh, they outclass a lot of like their Mesozoic relatives in terms of brain power and abilities mm. and stuff. But the fact that it's not, the fact that there's like birds of prey that do it, there's this claim of which I've written about Tetsu, this claim of tool use, use of sticks in um, crocodiles and alligators, that does open the possibility that uh, certainly in like uh, theropods and certainly more bird-like theropods, large-brained ones, ones that would have like been more adaptive and you know had more possibilities available to them, less stereotypical in their behaviour. It's possible they could have done some things with tools. I think I, I, yeah. I can I can conceive they would have used sticks and feathers and things as tools. They would have How? used anvils. Yeah, uh, anvils was interesting. Um, but I was wondering how much of tool use in um, modern birds is because they need another type of manipulative object. And lots of um, Mesozoic dinosaurs, of course, had arms and claws and hands, as well as feet in their mouth. I wonder if there would yeah. be much pressure to you know, use a stick when you've got a claw. Yeah, so that connects to the stuff we've spoken about in the past, about how theropods use their forelimbs, if they, if they had dexterous use of their forelimbs at all. Because for a lot of them, I mean, I mean, we're kind of thinking increasingly that they didn't, that they couldn't, like, pick things. They, they could, like, grab things and use their hands as, like, you know, sort of raking weapons or whatever. But uh, are you really going to imagine them to be able to... Well, you put the two hands you know, together. You've got a nice sort of grasping thing. You can hook things nicely. <clears throat> Doesn't really. Yeah. You don't need a lot of dexterity to be hooking things with your finger yeah. claws. Yeah, Center Center did a paper on this where he spoke about the sort of kinds of clutching behavior that would have been possible in manoraptorans, non-bird mm-hmm. manoraptorans, and he talks about like hand-hand clutching in animals like you know Donnychus and Bamboraptor, and also the possibility of hand-to-chest clutching that sort of thing if they wanted to carry things. Um, I still think they'd mostly use the mouth for that kind of stuff, but but yeah, they could have they could have done it. So, um, no, well, they think, must I have think... been using their arms for something because. Obviously, raking tacks and things like this, but they must have been. I bet they used them relatively frequently because so many dinosaurs have such large, well-developed arms. I think. I think if you are exploiting a resource that requires, like the let's say, bashing of a thing into a thing, so like breaking open eggs or whatever, then uh, and you've got dexterous forelimbs, then you're probably gonna. You may you may as well use them, but I wouldn't say that that the fact that theropods have got dexterous forelimbs immediately means they're unlikely to be tool users, because of course we've got well I don't want to start talking about mammals at length, but there's lots of mammals that are using hands um, in association with tools. Not only primates, but you know um, otters. Otters uh, use anvils to break open. Sea otters use they even use like bits of metal and uh, glass and stuff to <clears throat> excuse me break open bivalves and yeah echinoids and whatnot yeah so, i didn't want to make it sound like well because obviously the greatest tool using animal is us and we've got 
extraordinarily dexterous arms. I'm just saying the pressure for simple tool use seems like it's not as strong as it is in some birds. Yeah, yeah. So like the uh, <clears throat> the use of say spines, like like cactus spines, to weedle out grubs out of holes in bark. Um, when we think of tool use, one of the things we often think of is is the New Caledonian crows and Galapagos woodpecker finches that use spines from plants to get grubs out of holes but then if you think of applying that kind of behavior to yeah mesozoic non-bird theropods then yes wouldn't wouldn't they more likely use fingers again that's been suggested they could just reach in stab things with their hand claws that kind of stuff so i kind of agree with you i think maybe that would lessen the the uh, selection pressure to evolve tool use but on the other hand, I still think that it probably would be, you know, I just can't imagine these animals not picking up in their mouths things that will that can be useful for clobbering things, breaking things open, and and then I think how many this is this is the thing that's not not been discussed that much. I mean, it has been discussed, but not that much. And that's the use of eggs as a resource in the Mesozoic. We all talk about the fact that like if big dinosaurs are producing clutches of maybe 10, 20, 30 <laughs> eggs, maybe more than once in a year, and there are lots of big dinosaurs producing lots of clutches, eggs are going to be a significant resource in the uh, in the Mesozoic. So there's going to be lots of predators not relying on, but exploiting eggs. Yeah. And what's the easiest way to break open an egg? Well, if it's a big one, it's quite hard. You will have to whack it with something. You can't just smash it open with your foot or your face. Um, yeah, you'd want to pick it up or pick it up and drop it. Pick it up and smash it against something. Yeah. So maybe that was a thing. Maybe, hey, maybe there was selection pressure for mortal use in, the, in mesozoic theropods or other animals eating eggs. Remember, it's not just predators that eat eggs. We now know from um, uh, little cameras that people have hidden out in the wild that that it's routine for hoofed mammals to eat eggs if they find them. If a, if a cow is grazing in a field and it finds a little bird's nest, it doesn't eat the grass around the bird's nest, it eats the bird's nest, apparently deliberately. So, um, yeah, it wouldn't... Yeah, And a lot of ornithischian dinosaurs, so-called herbivorous dinosaurs, look more suited for omnivory or part-time carnivory than do herbivorous mammals. So maybe it was more of a thing back then. And uh, Yeah, it's something I hadn't really thought of, surprisingly, but that there would be so many eggs in the Mesozoic compared to the mammalian-dominated uh, world. And big eggs that would attract a different sort of um, opportunist. You've, to break a big sauropod egg, you've got to be a bigger animal. And Yeah, that is interesting. So, so maybe. there was routine. Yeah, there was, there was persistent... That, that's that's going to be the title of a nature paper. Routine... Hyperselection acting on mesozoic theropods in the promotion of obligate tool use. <laughs> right now, all right now, how do we demonstrate that? Well, in the zooarchaeological record, uh, people have been able to find ancient stone tools made by chimpanzees. So. Um, these, the, the chimp population, are, is it the Gombe chimps? I can't remember. There's a population of chimps that uses stone anvils to break open nuts 
and they put the nut in the knot of a tree root, a buttress root, and then you bang it with the big anvil that you get. So the final part of Jonathan's question, is there a plausible fossil scenario in which evidence stories could be preserved? Is the, the short answer is yes, isn't it? Because, because it turns out that people can find stone tools. We know they can find stone tools made by chimpanzees. Uh, can they find tools made by... It's a bit, uh, can they find tools made by other animals? Well, it, it all depends on how uh, ephemeral or the opposite of ephemeral the structures are. And if you're talking about sticks and things... That, oh, you're talking about things that are used once, then you're not going to find evidence of it. It's only of repeated things that are kept in place, like chimpanzee stone tools and human stone tools. Yeah, I don't, I don't know whether we'll get to find something like that for. Um... It's not likely, unless you find like one preserved clutching its favourite yeah. stick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think well, I can't think of a way. That'd be so cool. That'd be so cool. Imagine. Finding like an animal that's cuddling another one. They're not not they're not like it's eating it, but it's got a pet one. So I'm like, um, that's happened with humans. But sorry, yeah. well, I, yeah, well, you never know. Well, something like that could be discovered. Well, there's all those like, yeah. Anyway, uh, okay. This question is from George Bell, and he asks: Weasels ride woodpeckers, and hum- humans ride all sorts of mm-hmm. things. Does Darren know any other? Interspecific examples of tetrapods using tetrapods for transportation. Intraspecific. And could cowboys ride Ash Darkens? As shown in Mark Witten's. Mark Witten. Mark Mark Witten again. Um, (laughs) Sorry, Mark. Yes. So. Does does Darren know? So I don't care what you know. (laughs) The only thing I can think of. George, thank you for your wonderful question. Um, uh, yes, yes, I can think of a couple of examples, okay? And the first one is lazy, lazy birds that ride around on the backs of uh, buffalo and elephants and, and larger birds, like there are bee eaters and oxpeckers and egrets that hitch, hitch rides on other animals. That's probably technically not riding, though, is it? Because they're, they're, they're up there because they're... It's a comfortable place to perch, and they're often looking for invertebrates and such that are flushed out by the larger animal they're riding on. So I don't know if that counts. I kind of think it doesn't. But that's just but, a bit like foxes getting flushed out by hounds. I don't know, yes, it's sort of riding. Anyway, go on. <laughs> well, just because they're, they're, they're there for a purpose, which is looking for invertebrates that are being flushed out. So, you say, so you're saying that counts? Yeah, I think that does count, yeah. Because okay, they're, they're well, actually case, on there. It's not just case. an accident they're on there. They're on there specifically because they're doing something that that... Yeah, that is... I okay. would say that makes it more riding than otherwise. Well, in that case, there's a whole list of bird species, uh, among which are stars, beaters, egrets, uh, oxpeckers, that, um, that have been seen riding deer and uh, elephants and buffalo and bustards. There's, there's famous photographs of beaters riding on... Bustards, birds on birds on bigger <laughs> birds. Uh, so there's that. Then there's the there's this group of monkeys, macaques. I can't remember which species, and I can't remember if it's China or Japan. I'm going to go for China. That are, are that that um, hang out with a population of seeker deer, and um, they they're kind of friendly, 
and they groom each other so that the monkeys are like you know sort of ruffle, rifle through the deer's fur when the deer are like lying down or whatever and the the monkeys ride on the deer as well and is that for fun is that because they are really want to get from a to b uh, or are they using them as a trusty mount and are hunting some other monkeys? <laughs> well, no, it's not that last one, but uh, that's riding as well. Yeah. Um, oh, capybaras. Yeah, I was going to say, come on, the internet's full of these. I was just going to say, there's the whole capy- animals riding capybaras meme, isn't there? There's loads of those. Um, so you name it, and it's been photographed riding or filmed riding on the back of a capybara. Uh, then there's also, have you seen this thing where people race monkeys riding on the backs of pigs <laughs> so it's really cool <laughs> you put like a little monkey like a capuchin or whatever on the they're trained they've gotten used to it and uh, they don't they don't sit up like a human jockey does they cling like grabbing the the fur yeah. of the of the pig the hair of the pig and uh, there's these really funny races monkeys on monkeys on pigs you're googling it right now aren't you um actually i was re- yeah um so <laughs> I guess the question is, how many of these things happen, happen in the wild? Yeah. So, so all that birds on bigger birds and birds on mammals is obviously in the wild. The Far East Asian monkeys on seeker deer is in the wild. And can I think of any others? Um, I think that might be it in terms of what I can think of off the top of my head right now. Uh, oh, and, and yeah... Birds and things on capybaras. Um, so these little monkeys on capybaras, does that happen in the wild? I don't think it does with monkeys because monkeys and capybaras tend not to be in the same place, given that capybaras are sort of like wetland amphibious herbivores. There aren't that many monkeys that really share that habitat with them. Mm-hmm. But aren't there... There's other... What other animals are shown on capybaras? So they show... Uh, um, animal riding cappy. <laughs> Bara. Oh, oh, I've just remembered. Yeah. There's that a series of photographs from last year of a dolphin riding on the snout of a humpback whale. <laughs> the humpback whale lifted its nose up out of the water at a 45 degree angle, and this dolphin, I think it was a spinner dolphin, um, stayed on the edge of the like, tip of the snout and slid off backwards. And it didn't happen once. It was photographed several times at several different places. I think it's... My memory is suggesting it's the Hawaiian archipelago. It's different times, different places, but the same two individuals. And, of course, the individuals can be identified based on lumps and bumps on their skin and notches in their tails, that sort of thing. Yeah. So, yeah... Uh, it seemed they the two had a relationship and did this for fun. That's that's riding on another animal. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Oh, there's um, grebes. Baby grebes ride on. I might. He specifically said. George did say intraspecific, not interspecific, because obviously there are lots of animals that hang on the backs of their parents or whatever. So let's not worry about those. Did I get that wrong? I was. Yeah. Um, Interspecific. He means one species on another species. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Which is, which is in, 
Interspecific. Interspecific, no. yes. Not intra. Intra yes. is within a species. Yes, George so. did actually send a follow-up correcting that to inter because oh, okay. that's what he meant. Right. So, yes, that's why I read it out that way. We knew what was meant there, Yes, yeah, I think. But I think that's... Oh, I, I, and for, for, the, for the five people that don't know, the weasels riding woodpeckers thing was a reference to a photograph that appeared online, uh, I, th- I, reckon, I reckon it's last year, that showed a green woodpecker that wasn't at all happy. It's got like a, a weasel or a least weasel if you're American, um, like on its back. But it's not riding the woodpecker. It's like trying to bite through the back of its skull and eat its brains out. <laughs> Uh, the woodpecker's not pleased. <clears throat> and the final bit here, could could cowboys ride as darkards? Oh. Well, didn't Mark do some calculations which show that, that yes, as darkards can carry humans for a distance? I missed that, but yeah, it does sound plausible because... I'm pretty sure. Yeah, a smallish adult is probably within the realms of how much fat an as dark, darkard could carry. Yep. Um, so, yeah, sort of a quarter of their body weight, something like that. So, yes. Let me hold on before we carry on. Let me just find the um, uh, terror. Just the no, no. Okay, Mark did. Yeah. I think two articles on his blog, which are what would the world be like if pterosaurs were alive today? And it's all about like as darkids scavenging out of bins and people using them in the Wild West and stuff. And io9 picked, picked this up and um, covered it as well. So internet's not working for me right now, but um, um, you can find it easily online. io9 if pterosaurs were alive today or something like that. Okay. Um, so I think the, the main problem with Nash Darkett is how you'd sit on it. Mm. Might be tricky. Um, where would you put? You'd have to. Well, the way I was saying how monkeys ride pigs is you have to ride it like a speeder bike, not like a horse. Yeah. As in, like leaning your body pressed against its back, your hands forwards. It's your legs that are the main problem. You'd have to keep your feet together and near its because their bodies are so short as well. Yeah, aren't their bodies? Your legs even would big dangle one. off the back, which would be a problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'd be really difficult. Or you could sit up right over its shoulders and put your knee like your your uh dangle your legs off the front either side of its neck. <laughs> Cuz that'd be the coolest way to ride it. It would. That'd be the most yee-haw way of riding it. What about doing like the dino rider thing and having like a hang glider construction so you can Yeah, that's uh, nowhere near as cool. Ah, oh, no one wants that. <laughs> Okay, so do you think we've sufficiently butchered that question? Yes, is the answer. Yeah. You can ride Nash Darkard. But so, how you would do it, whether you'd sit on its back or lie on it. Yeah. Or harness yourself to its underside, is what yeah. I was in the middle of discussing, as per dino riders. And in the James Gurney Dinotopia, I believe you, now they sit on their backs, don't they? They do, yeah. Skybacks riders or they something. sort of lie down, yeah, like your first suggestion. Yeah, I think it probably would be tricky, but I think you could do it. 
Well, there you go. There it's you science, go. listeners. Right. <laughs> okay, final cash question. It's from Isaac Crone, and he says, I am an undergraduate in the US, University of Chicago, and beginning to look at graduate schools. I've been reading listening for a little over a year, and in a large part due, due to the blog and podcast, my lifelong interest in vertebrate paleontology has been tempered by an even greater love for animals as a whole. If I'm interested in tetrapods as a whole and their evolution and conservation, is there a best path for me to follow in graduate education? So, that's yeah. Go. That's a that's a distressingly serious <laughs> um question, but a very but a good one. Um I I don't really have any any firm advice. Isaac, good luck to you. Main thing is take as many biology and science courses as you can. Um and uh do get get well versed in chemistry and stats and maths and stuff if you can do all that in addition to biology classes but uh basically take taking as much sciencey stuff as you can and uh re- reading as much as you can like for fun i mean don't christ don't make it a chore but um you know being being well grounded in science in general is uh, is a, is an excellent practice for someone who's seriously interested in biology and some of the best, most successful, most prolific uh, people who work on animal behavior and conservation and stuff um, can uh, do the most they can with the data they collect on animals because they know what kind of how, – how you can – the sort of tricks you can play with data, statistical things and all that kind of stuff and uh, novel ways of thinking about things. Um, of course, it does also help to be, uh, you know, to be good at good at writing, and and also to have to be uh, quite strong in terms of general science philosophy. But those are kind of the, the, those are slightly trickier subjects because that's sort of a thing that people assume that everyone can do as a scientist, but yet we don't study it, do we? We don't have like philosophy of science or how to be a good technical writer or how to be a good writer. I mean, I studied English language because I had ideas about becoming a journalist that did media studies and stuff, which helped me. But uh, in the terms of all the all the science I've ever done, it's just assumed that you're you're a good writer. And of course, a lot of people that write scientific reports papers that aren't good writers yeah um and then and then get to quite far down the road and then finally they can't write well um which which can be a problem uh so that, that's like kind of that's that's a very woolly answer but that's kind of like my main thing and the other thing is um we've all got different personal circumstances in terms of like how we can how far we're prepared to travel where we can travel around the world but certainly you know have i have places in mind and look at what kind of look at the experts that are around you or where you think you're going to be living or where you're going to be moving and see what kind of research groups interest you and well i'd also say to isaac is it's it's unclear here but um do you definitely want to be an academic because if you're interested in zoology in general and conservation in particular there's all sorts of jobs out there that aren't necessarily straight academia and they might be more interesting. So I would, interesting to you, which means that you might not, you might get a master's instead of full PhD. You know, it might not be necessary to get a PhD because lots of people feel pressured to go down the PhD route when it might not be the best choice for them. Um, so I'd say to Isaac, what are you looking at doing? Because there can be sort of an assumption that everyone's just going to go through this the same academic track you get 
you know, you go to graduate school, you get get your PhD. Um, and then there's no job afterwards, right? <laughs> what are you that actually going to do with your life? Yeah. And just sort of thinking that, well, I'll just get the PhD and then it'll sort itself out is wrong. And it might, in fact, be a big waste of time if you're more, if you find yourself much more interested in some sort of aspect of conservation biology and there's a different sort of job out there. So I would, I would say have a look at what sorts of jobs are around and whether you're really interested in being a full-time salaried academic or something else and then decide what you actually need to do to get there. Um, because the salaried academic route is is only available to a very small number of people and it only suits a small number of people. Lots of people hate it, right? We sh- yeah, we should say that it's yeah, getting qualified in the in the sciences in general, there isn't exactly a surplus of jobs. This is this is a problem. A lot of people become qualified in stuff where there's a, sh- a chronic shortage of jobs, and uh, as a consequence, there are lots of floating people that don't ever get what they want. Uh, and and then you know those that can that are mobile and uh, have got wealth and stuff are infinitely advantaged, but. Um, yeah, but also I think, I think that there are people that go through this and end up an academic and don't seem actually very happy <laughs> with that because the academic jobs can be really. I think a lot of the work isn't what you think it is. It's a huge amount of grant proposal writing, and you know I think for a lot of top academics it takes up about half their time. And if you don't, if you hate that or really don't like the idea of that, then you should avoid academia. You should do something else. And there are other jobs. You know, there's jobs in um, charities, wildlife charities, this sort of stuff, zoology in general, zoos, these sorts of things you could consider looking at. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, between us, I think we've given, yeah. I gave a vague, woolly bit of woolly advice on, on, on getting into science and... Uh, I quite agree with John. Yeah, you shouldn't think that's the only goal here. You, you kind of don't know. I mean, do, we, do we do we know how old Isaac is? Uh, undergraduate. Well, you know, well, you, it's difficult to know what decisions. W- when is the right time in your life to make these kinds of decisions? But um, well, now-ish, from the sounds of things, <laughs> if he's, if he's finish up, finishing up his undergraduate degree and is looking at where to go next, then now is sort of the time to. Start thinking about what you actually want to do job-wise, because now's when it starts to matter. Yeah. Okay. Do you think we've given a fairly rounded? I think so. Is the best path for me to follow in graduate education? Yeah. See, he is specifically saying he wants to go into graduate education, but uh, yeah. Yeah, but also lots of jobs require a graduate education, um, but doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be an academic. Yeah, um, I think so, we need but more it'd be people. good to have that in mind if you're going to, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. More people need to go into conservation biology, I think. I think, and, and lots more. Uh, yeah, so I've got nothing concrete to say there. Well, so. it also seems like there'll be, I mean, <laughs> vertebrate paleontology. There are virtually no jobs. Let's be let's be honest about this. The chance of becoming a vertebrate paleontologist is so slim. And if you yeah. are interested in other things, then, yeah, consider pursuing them. You can always do vertebrate, vertebrate paleontology on the side. 
Well, it's good. It's good to have that historical context, yes. uh, and there's and there's a good there's a good reason to know about obviously the history of things if you're interested in yeah conservation biology because increasingly people are trying to reintroduce animals back to places where they were. You can't do that without historical background, part of which is from fossils and archaeological records and stuff. But uh, there's so much other stuff to do. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. Let's talk about it. You're going to leave. You're going to leave that one. That one. Can you see this one? You're going to leave this one. Oh, I did you just miss I mislabeled it? it? Yeah, I missed it. Oh. I thought I did. No, we haven't. Definitely haven't done that no, one. No, we haven't done that one. That's interesting. Do you want to leave it till next time? Yeah, let's leave it till next time. Let's leave it because otherwise okay. we're gonna. Okay, there was um, one more cash question from Kai Casper and. I missed it. So we're going to go back and do that next episode. Right. Yeah. So should we talk about the... Thank uh, you, Cash, for, yeah. Yeah, Thank you, Cash, for questioners. We really appreciate your questions. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Especially the big money ones. You know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> right. Star Wars. Oh, Star Wars. Yay. Star Wars Episode 7, The Force awakens yeah um yeah we're going to talk about this a little bit we said some stuff last time but oh and we haven't released that episode yet <laughs> we said some stuff in episode 50 about star wars didn't we not very much because we didn't we weren't giving okay. any spoilers all right all right we're gonna okay we're going to release we're gonna be totally what do you call it when you don't give a crap when you're gonna like throw our arms up in the air and throw spoilers all over the place yes so if you don't total spoilers, spoilers yeah if you, yeah, and yeah, total spoiler warning. Everything will be spoiled. You will not be able to enjoy this film after listening to us. Okay, so so who wants to go first? You go first. Okay, Star Wars. I watched it twice in cinema, mm-hmm. and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a good film. It's got kind of a fairly simple storyline with real contrast to the prequels. So Luke Skywalker's missing, and people are looking for him, and they find him at the end. And... The film does a good job of setting things in the context of like the Star Wars universe to a degree. They deliberately haven't done a lot of stuff that is in line with the George Lucas's style of things. The creatures are almost non-existent, very different. Uh, the creatures in the Star Wars universe tend to be basically like mammals and birds, sometimes with an extra set of limbs, whereas those Raptark things they had, they were like Cthulhu-esque sort of blobby monster things that really were not consistent with the Star Wars universe. And that's not a complaint. I'm just saying that's a different thing about it. And I think they did quite a good job of reminding us that we humans do not all consist of white male people. And because uh, there are white girl people as well. <laughs> and there's also other color people. And uh, I think, you know, well done to them to that. I, I, I thought the performances were brilliant. I thought I haven't remembered the names of any of the actors involved. I thought Ray was fantastic. I just, I loved her sort of, the kind of like, sort of genuine kind of enthusiasm in it and sort of emotion she, she sometimes showed. I thought Kylo Ren was pretty awesome. Um, obviously, Harrison Ford's performance was very strong, that kind of stuff. C3 here with a red arm. I don't give a crap why he's got a red arm. And, right. So, so in general, I enjoyed all those things about it. But, oh. You think about this movie after you've seen it, it's like, hold on, wasn't that like the best bits of all the other films just put into one film? So, oh my God, you're kidding. 
there's a, there's a Death Star. Nah, it's not the same as the Death Star because it's much, much bigger. <laughs> oh, you mean it's the sort of Death Star they have in like a sequel? Yeah, it's like a giant Death Star and it giant and it shoots laser bolt things. It shoots at the sun. It, sh- it collects energy from the sun. The sun? There's a sun theme going on here maybe because Kylo Ren is the sun and there's a reveal well no it's not a reveal because we already knew about it but there's a thing on a narrow platform which is very similar to the we are spoiling uh, it yeah yeah we are yeah, spoiling yeah. it yeah we're allowed to do that yeah um, uh, yeah that, that was I'd, what I'm what I'm trying to explain is that it felt like a mashup of the best bits from the other Star Wars films the bits that we all love like oh we all love the bit when the Millennium Falcon is being chased by TIE fighters or whatever and we all love ice planets and we all love death planet things and there's so much of it in there that was that felt like just trying to re is almost like it was a reboot like trying to reboot the original franchise not the prequels yeah trying to reboot episodes four five and six but with a modern spin on it like there are actually women in the universe Mm. and it's not just two (laughs) Mon, Mon Mothma and Princess Leia, um, and black people are allowed to be important characters, which uh, I know um, there's a whole story behind, like, yeah. well, Lando, Lando Carizian and those kind of people were uh, Captain Panaka. Uh, I think they were specifically put in there because George Lucas was um, criticized for his very Lily White portrayal of the Star Wars universe in the very first film. But Kylo Ren is portrayed as this like super powerful evil badass character who's so powerful that he can stop a laser bolt in the air. Oh my god, yeah. he's like 10 times more powerful than Darth Vader. But no, Darth Vader could do that. Darth Vader could stop bolts of Yeah, we discussed this before. <laughs> yeah. Darth, no Darth Vader. Yeah, well, whatever, whatever. Kylo Ren has got like massive power of the force kind of stuff going on. But he meets two people that have almost never held lightsaber before and one of them is just meant to be at like fledgling Jedi powers stage and the other one is just a guy and uh, and they nearly beat him in a fight so <laughs> what that's just not on that wasn't right I don't know I thought they didn't uh, that seemed inconsistent it was like Ray's ability to control the force towards the end of the film when she's fighting Kylo Ren and some other stuff happens it's like she's pretty powerful which, okay, that's fine. You're allowed to be super powerful in terms of force powers. But the other films have established how it, t- it takes Luke, like, training with Yoda for some period of time. Uh, to, yeah, before he's but able- Luke was such a whiny, whingy. <laughs> <laughs> and how come, how come Rey could speak astro mesh droid? She's meant to be basically stuck on a planet on her own. She's really unhappy and lonely. And she's... Uh, what was that desert planet called? Um, uh, yeah, whatever. I don't remember the name. Yeah, <laughs> got, to, got to remember it. Why? Who cares? Move on. Okay, she's she's stuck on that desert planet, and um, she's she's not happy, and she's she's like a nomad scavenger type person. Mm. So she should have had, and she's been there since she was a young child. We think. She should be very insular, but she's not. She's like super cosmopolitan. She can speak loads of obscure foreign languages. She can talk to Chewbacca. Now, Wookiees speak a language called Shiriwook, and it's meant to be unusual 
that my understanding is meant to be unusual that Harrison Ford can understand it. A couple of other characters can, and supposedly Lando Carizian can understand it as well. But uh, she can she can speak that. So how does she actually learn Shiri work on a little desert planet where she works as a scavenger? And she can speak Astromesh. She can she can converse with the uh, little droids like BB. What's he called? BB Eight. Hmm, BB Eight. Maybe they have droids on that planet. Maybe they scavenge them. And they learn their beepy beep language. Yeah. Really, yeah. doesn't sound likely to me, John. Uh-huh. <laughs> I refuse to suspend my disbelief on that one thing. <laughs> um, so, so overall, I like so so take home. I enjoyed it. Great spectacle. Loved the performances. Saw it twice at the cinema. Really enjoyed it. Kind of felt like it was in the Star Wars universe, but also a few things that kind of kind of took it out of it a little bit. But my main the main thing that I don't want to say ruined it or anything like that because it certainly didn't but the main criticism is that oh, not another planet with Death Star thing come on it's like we've all these all the best bits of the film all the themes here's the reason I forgive that the original series and there's only three of them did that twice it is Star Wars to be blowing up a Death Star if they had to go back to it in the original series, then every every second Star Wars film should be about blowing up a Death Star. That's what Star Wars is. So I don't care that they retrod that because they all, they retrod it in the in the first series. So who cares? Well, the Galactic Empire planned for years to construct the ultimate super weapon that would give them control over all of the systems. Yeah. Then it was destroyed. Oh, great. Okay. Well, don't worry. We'll build another one. We've got the funds to do it. Now, there's meant to be this small faction that's broken away from the New Republic. We don't know all the details here. I, I, I am, you know, we do not know the exact backstory, probably because there isn't one. Or the, maybe there is, but it's in a comic or something. But it's like the... First Order is meant to be this, like, breakaway, like, fledgling Nazi party. You think of, like, the fledgling, whatever they were called, whatever the National Socialists were called. Meant to be this, like, new little thing that's just getting started. And it'll take time before they've, like, come super powerful. But they've got, they're super powerful from the off. And they've already got, like, a whole army and all these machines. And, and, they, and enough to build not just a Death Star... A star, a star Killer Base, I think it was called, which if you know your Star Wars history, the name Star Killer goes all the way back to the, the early Genesis, the idea before the you know, back in the seventies. But um the the whole idea that ah, oh, they've built like a planet that's like fifty times bigger and it's and and it can it's big enough to destroy the New Republic. There you go, that's the Republic gone. <laughs> End of, right? Oh, okay. Um Yeah, well, I think part of the pro- my whatever I don't really care. Who knows how? Who knows how Death Star technology has moved on in the intervening thirty years or whatever, right? Forty years. So forty years of technology, technological progress. Who knows? Maybe it's a lot cheaper, and it was built inside a planet rather than. Yeah, that was weird. I didn't like the bit at the end. I don't know how it moved about. Did they build it in sight, or did they move the whole planet around the galaxy? Mm, I don't, we don't know. It doesn't seem like they moved it. But when they destroyed the planet at the end, it tur- it looked like it turned into a sun. 
it exploded and then it turned to like a glowing ball. Now, I wonder if there was any thought went into that. Like, oh, that's because it had like, you know, looked cool. a core that expanded or whatever. But um, looked cool. Or maybe they just, it looked cool, yeah. And one of the things that people got into before the film was released is this character called Captain Phasma. <laughs> yeah. Who is like, she's, she, she's like uh, a tall, like chrome-plated stormtrooper who, of course, is played by the same lady who plays Brienne of Tark in uh, <laughs> Game of Thrones. <laughs> on her real name but it's like oh yeah she's really cool she's gonna he's gonna she's gonna be like the main badass who like goes around and does kylo ren's dirty work no she walks down a corridor she gets cuffed and thrown in a garbage chute and that's all that happens like what a waste i thought but maybe the plan was just to introduce her and she's gonna be a important character in the next one that's probably what they're thinking yes so. definitely um what was the first line of the film i don't remember it was i think this will put things right, right? Which I took away as meaning, you know those crappy three, three movies you just <laughs> sat through? Well, forget about those. This will set things right. Yeah. And uh, so, I agree. It was, I think this is, as I predicted, either the fourth or the third best Star Wars film. I think I'm leaning at the moment towards third best. I think it's better than Return of the Jedi. Mm. Um, Did you so, hear Yub Nub? Yub Nub. Yub Nub. Yeah, they play, they're playing Yub Nub in um, Maz's palace. So they visit a car- Maz's castle, whatever it's called. Maz, little kind of like that female Yoda, as my yeah. wife called her. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's apparently based on a teacher of one of the writers or something. But. Um, yeah, there was, that was that was their cantina scene. It was like well, they yeah. go into a slightly weird place where there's like all exotic aliens, and yeah. Yubnub was playing in the background at one point. Right. Sorry, I just had to put that in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I went to see it with my mother-in-law, and she called it that film about the gold man and the Dalek. <laughs> she doesn't know her sci-fi, your mum. <laughs> mother-in-law, sorry. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, I thought it was uh, it was good. I look. I don't care about dissecting the plots too much in Star Wars because all these things fall apart on close inspection. And I just—does it really matter? Because it feels like Star Trek. You just spin off this endless amount of rubbish trying to explain all this stuff, and it doesn't work, people. It's um, so, you know, plot holes. As long as I don't really notice them while I'm watching the film, I don't really care. If they're not sitting there and they're bothering me, I don't don't care. I don't care about it later. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So they didn't spoil it while I was watching it. So I don't don't mind about the plot holes. Um, I think they made... I I liked the look of the film. I thought, yeah, the acting was great. I liked... Like Ray uh, Daisy Ridley is who played Ray. She's uh, she's really good. I thought that was that was interesting. I guess partly helped by the fact that we haven't really seen her before. Maybe I don't know, but yeah. So she made the film, gave it the right attitude. The whole thing felt had a sort of a a lighter touch than a lot of the other films, right? Because Luke was so whiny. He was saved by Harrison Ford. Imagine a film with just Luke Skywalker. 
Oh my <laughs> god, that'd be unbearable. Like the Leia and Han Solo thing saved that. Um, <clears throat> so I think Ray sort of brought that kind of funniness that it needed. And that was another thing that this film had. It had more and better comedy than the prequels had. Um, yeah. yeah, there was More some, there in was line with genuine. the first ones. And I think funnier yeah. in some ways. So I, I enjoyed that. I thought that was good. Yeah. I thought they... And um, I liked yeah, the look of it. I liked the baddies, or, you know, sort of returning to form, you know, big black capes and masks and scary voices. I thought some of the... Um, the the baddies in the prequels were people like Darth Maul, but I, that's a stupid name, and he looked stupid, and he had a stupid weapon. I didn't like him at all. I thought he was dumb. <laughs> and General Grievous. I mean, what? Look, this is something I'm going to complain about the sequels again. But in the original film, was anyone called an actual word? Vader is not a word. Sure, it's meant to sort of bring to mind Invader, right? It's meant to have sort of mm-hmm. dark connotations. But he wasn't called Darth Invader. So why <laughs> is there someone called General Grievous? Darth Maul? These are goddamn words. <laughs> it just oh. seemed like, well, we're just gonna, we're just gonna, yeah. Why the Darth Evil next? I mean, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> I don't understand what went, went on there. Why, why he just decided to go with words. Merchandise, yeah, but what? Because it, it trans because they got it's got to be something that translates into other languages. It doesn't mean something stupid, and kids can spell it. <laughs> I don't know. Vader <laughs> was great, right? Yeah, great name. Yeah, um, only a master of evil, Darth. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you calling him Darth? <laughs> That's a ceremonial title. <laughs> yes, maybe it wasn't originally, huh? It clearly wasn't. It was meant no, to be like... this is meant to be his first name. John Vader, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was, definitely. And Darth. Obi-Wan. It's sort of like dearth and dark and, you know, this sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, what was the point? Yes, yeah, so they sort of brought back that sort of feeling, the, the capes and the, the voices and the um, more sort of uh, Darth Vader kind of evil, which I thought was good. Um a bit grittier, in a way, I think. Mm. I thought that was good. But I think they made a really fundamental mistake in this film. And you could edit it so that it goes away. You've got to cut out Snook, or whatever his ah, name is. That's just what I was going to say. Yeah, Snook. I mean, yeah. I don't... It's not so much what he is, but you shouldn't know anything about him in the first film. Yeah. You shouldn't know what's going on. You shouldn't know that there's another sort of emperor-type figure. It should feel like maybe it's just Kylo Ren and this... What's his name? This general dude who have got together, maybe. And Kylo Ren's yep. still trying to find his way, and he doesn't have a master, maybe. Like, don't tell us. Leave all that mysterious. And... um. I think that was a fundamental artistic error in this film, and they should have left that alone. And because the the First Order, should, it sounds like it's meant to be mysterious. We're not really meant to know what it is, mm. um, or where its power base comes from, or anything like this. And I think that was just such a mistake. No, I thought that as well. I, I think, and I wonder if the only reason they had whatever he was called it wasn't what, what, Senator Snoke. What, no, whatever he was called, Grand Leader. Oh. Moff Tart, no. Uh, whatever. Snook? The, re- the, the reason he was in there is probably because Snoke, they... Snoke, um, Yeah, stupid name too. <laughs> Snoke. 
they came up with a, they came up with a list of awesome people they wanted to have in the movie, and one of them was Andy Circus. So we've got to have a, we've got to have some performance capture. You don't call it motion capture anymore. Yeah. We want to have a performance capture <laughs> character, and then, and then they run out of characters. Like, what about we have some like giant hologram thing? He looks like an old dude, but he's got like an injury on his face. That can be Andy Serkis can do that one for us. Like well, a giant golem in a chair. I mean, it's fine. They should have brought him in in the second or third film, not not the first. It, it just it seemed to me is not a good it was name. too much. I mean, given that there's already more than an echo of a Death Star idea, and these other things that are so you know similar to the other films, to have basically a neo emperor is basically what they're doing. I thought that was, yeah, it was that kind of, yeah, that was, that was a, a, a negative point. Um, and, and, and it raises loads of questions, you know, you 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 because you can't help but ask who this character is and where they are in the galaxy and why they're important and why they don't have a small hologram is like a, like a hundred foot tall one. Um, <laughs> completely pointless. Yes. So I think what this film suffered from was trying to introduce too much, I guess, because the first film, like literally the first film, A New Hope. Um, they didn't know whether they were going to make sequels. They probably thought they would, but they didn't know. And therefore, it was a self-contained film. They didn't introduce thousands of characters that they weren't going to... that weren't really going to have a role. Um, whereas I felt like this one did. And they're trying to, like... As we say, you know, what's her name? The um, Oh, C- Captain Phasma, right? Yeah. What? Pointless. Pointless, really, having her in that film in that way. And Snook. 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 <laughs> Snook. Snorky. <laughs> Snorky. <laughs> so I think it, what it did suffer was they were trying to introduce too many characters. They were trying to keep the old characters in it. Right, so you have to phase out the old characters from all the old films, introduce all these new. I mean, it's a, it's a difficult artistic problem that they had to get around. And they got around it reasonably well, but it did suffer from this a little bit, mm-hmm. introducing too many characters while you're still fading out, phasing out old characters. Um, so, yeah, I wish they'd done. Yeah, Snoke was just completely unnecessary. Ruined it. It's worse than unnecessary. It ruined part of the film. Oh well, mm-hmm. it ruined okay. the mysteriousness of the first order okay that's an interesting point um i'm not sure i'm not sure i'd go that far i i certainly do agree it was like i said a negative thing but uh yeah yeah snoke see we should be left wondering and i think this would have been a better thing whether the first order was a group of people or whether it was Mm -hmm. one person like is there a first order council or something or is it a mysterious order or is it or is it just a big emperor dude, and it's a big emperor dude, and we know that already, and that's like boring. Shouldn't know that. Well, yes. Although there is this allusion to, oh, I don't know, I don't know. Yes, I, 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 I do completely agree with you there. I'm just, I'm just thinking that they, they try to work in some more complex backstory by the making out the fact that Kylo Ren is not just like uh, a Darth Vader type person in a funny suit. He's meant to be part of or the last member of or something this this faction called the knights of wren which uh, of course you can't help but compare with a monty python star thing <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah what's the story there and there's like a flashback i think ray has a flashback to a bat to a battlefield scene where there's a bunch of 
I, th- I think I'm remembering this right. And then they show like a, a group of Knights of Ren, and they've like slaughtered like a thousand other people or something because they're so badass, but they're okay. Uh, yeah, but, maybe but, I don't remember that, but yeah. Whether that's got any connection at all to the history of again, I mean, I didn't remember no. that, so they're jamming in a lot of stuff, which you just like. Wow, there's a lot of stuff in this film. Yeah, the, the the so the the bit given that this is the Tetsuya podcast on the Jakku Jakku's the name of the desert planet on Jakku. Did you spot the alpacas? There were alpacas being used as pack animals, <laughs> <laughs> and did you see the puffins? <laughs> no, I puffins. didn't see the puffins. Well, you oh, know, Ray goes to the island in the sea at the at the end. Oh yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and she and and Luke is on that little island. Well, that little island is off the coast of Ireland, and uh, and as you might you could tell that from the architecture and the look of the greenery and stuff. But if she walks past puffins and you see full mars and kittiwakes and like you know European seabirds, those of you who are so inclined may like to find online the article about the use of that island because it's a protected bird sanctuary and people aren't allowed to go there. So the film people contacted the Irish. Whoever you know, some like cultural ministry thing, and they said, "Oh yeah, we'd love you to. We'd love you to give us like two million pounds to film on the island for a week. Yeah, you go for it." But then people like BirdLife and you know various wildlife and conservation organisations said, "Well, you really shouldn't, because the whole point of those islands is people don't go there because pe- rats are always in ships and stuff, and and you can hurt birds using lights and helicopters and things." So. They did it anyway. So they visited in the middle of the breeding season and uh, killed loads of little baby birds by um, accidentally um, like blasting them off ledges with helicopters, downdraft from helicopters. Then they did the that was during like an, an initial recce because they were told no they were told no filming in breeding season. It's like okay, no filming in the breeding season, but we'll do our recce in the middle of the breeding season. So they did. They so they went did some, you know, initial helicopter circuits and checked it out and stuff. But then the actual film and they didn't do that in the breeding season, but they did do it in the season when the birds have got their chicks and their birds are you know, rallying back and forth, taking food to the birds. And it's there is a concern that um that they they could well have disrupted the uh the well-being the life cycles of sheer water and like that. Plus, people go into those islands, you know, like I said, there's a reason you don't go there because because uh, it's easy to introduce, well, rats and whatever. It's interesting because uh, you would have thought there would be much more... With sort of camera trickery, only showing certain angles or, you know, adding sea in where there isn't... You'd think there'd be plenty of places where you could film mainland, which would look similar, wouldn't you? Well, I mean, it did look fairly spectacular, but nothing like... There's heaps of coastline in Britain like that. Yeah, it's a funny one. I don't know why they... they uh, interesting why they chose that particular place. But yeah, that's, uh, it was not a good place to choose from if you care about conservation and ethics. Um, I mean, because like some of the other places, the the, the runway place w- that look where the, where the Millennium Falcon and the, this, this this place where like the... What do we call them? The re- they're not the rebels. I mean, what do you call the the, the people that have just fought the first order? Them lot. Uh, yeah. What are they called? The um, uh, the Republic, well, New Republic. Well, they're part of the New Republic, aren't they? But yeah. whatever, wherever wherever their base was, that was oh, that famous airfield in here in southern England. Uh, Somewhere in like Surrey or something, which you could tell from the vegetation and everything. But 
of course, it it looked a bit more exotic than that because in the background they'd added some like big rocky mountains and like sort of you know steam coming off the forest and everything. So so yeah, my point my point being that you can exoticify the most you know southern England is not renowned for its exotic yeah locations. Well, I think as I say, the coastline of England is actually fairly uh well maybe you don't consider it exotic, but it is quite spectacular. Mm-hmm. A lot of the English coast. Um, I I think they. This film, they they avoided as much as they could um, CGifying the whole thing because yeah, which yeah. was good. They robot animals and stuff. Yeah, because um, the uh, the prequels really suffer from this, and once you start to notice it, it really takes you out of the film. Just looking at the backgrounds, which don't look quite real, you know, CGing a whole bunch of stormtroopers that do the same motions <laughs> over and over and over again, and you just oh. like if you don't notice it, it's okay. But once you've noticed it and start looking for uh-huh. it, it's really bad. And CG I think they wanted to troopers. avoid that stuff. Yeah, so. CG clone troopers are just terrible. They just do not – their proportions – they might be millimetrically out, but it's enough for you to tell. There's bits where – where because the, all the clone troopers are meant to be clones of um, uh, Django Fett. And um, so they've got the same actor. You know, there's a million clones of him. And there's bits when like a clone trooper takes off their, their helmet, but the – the proportion of the, the 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 guy's head to the rest of the clone troop is just slightly wrong, and also you see exactly the same, exactly the same, uh, yeah, movements, uh, facial expressions. There's a bit at the start of um, the what's the what's episode three called? The Revenge of the Sith. Um, there's a, I think it's Revenge of the Sith where there's like a fight in space, and um, there's like a bit where a clone trooper like looks behind himself just before he dies. And then as his plane, as his plane, as his proto X-wing thing, whatever it's called, blows up, he does exactly the same action again. And he's even saying the same words as he said when he talks to Anakin <laughs> like thirty seconds beforehand. It's like, wow, that just looks rubbish. So I think in this film, <laughs> rubbish. They went, <laughs> they went to extraordinary lengths for a modern film to film real places with real actors and that sort of thing. Which I think, yeah, and giant monstery things. Yeah, the pig monster on. Uh, which I think did pay it. off. It did look a lot better than the prequels, in that respect. I thought. Yeah. Um. So, have we got anything else important to say about this film? <laughs> Not important. Um, <laughs> uh, I can't. I can only think of like little random bits of rubbish, like. Uh, they, they, they were. They, I think, in view of what I'm saying about them making it out to be like rebooting of the best bits of the previous films, it's like it was made for Star Wars fans. So there's lots of little references, lots of things that reward us for, um, like, like. Okay, everybody has affection for the relationship between Chewbacca and Han Solo. And everybody knows that, you know, Chewbacca's kind of cool and he's got this, like, crossbow weapon. But that's, like, where your knowledge of it ends. They made a point of showing in this film that, that Han Solo and Chewbacca, they've been working together for, you know, 40 years or whatever. But, but Han Solo has never once used Chewbacca's crossbow weapon. But now he finally gets a chance and he finds out, oh, wow, this is really cool. Why, why haven't I been shooting people with this before? <laughs> choo, choo, choo. Oh, well, they made a point of putting stuff like that. In there, which is like that's rewarding us for knowing stuff about the other the other films, and of course we knew that Harrison Ford would would die, 
sorry, that Hans. <laughs> no, that Hans Solo. Uh, I'm sure Harrison Ford will die one day, but I'm sure uh, Harris, uh, Hans Solo. They made a point of showing Hans Solo dying because, of course, that's been a whole a thing going back through the whole of the Star Wars films. Because he didn't really, he didn't want to do all those movies. You know, that's why there's the whole thing with him getting frozen in carbonite yeah. in the Empire Strikes Back. Because it's like, <laughs> how do I get out of this <laughs> this pile of junk? Um, <laughs> Can you, can you just kill me off? Because that's, yeah. He wanted to be killed off, and they're like, no, we need that Harrison Solo character. They sure did. They sure <laughs> did. Those films would be so bad without Han Solo. We need him for the one with the teddy bear. <laughs> oh, God. Can you imagine that without Han Solo? The merchandise one. Yes. Um, um, and, of course, there is a Han Solo dedicated movie coming out. It's all about the backstory to Han Solo. I bet you're looking forward to that. No. It's not even going to have Harrison Ford in it, is it? No. Uh, well, presumably not, because it's no. meant to be a little bit so, young. Yeah, exactly. uh, young. So it's not going to look right, is he? And it's um, not going to act right. What's the name of the actor who played Kylo Ren? I've uh, forgotten his name. Adam Driver. Adam Driver. It's not going to be played by Adam Driver. Now, that would be, be strange, wouldn't it? Have him playing himself and his son. No, they wouldn't do that. <laughs> No, there's another actor which I think is does look a lot like young Harrison Ford, but even so, it doesn't look exactly like a young Harrison Ford. So Carrie Fisher received this. Now, this is one of those things that make you, that make you feel quite bad about like how terrible people are. Mm. But Carrie Fisher got like millions of millions of hateful tweets and things about her, the way she looks nowadays. Yeah. And what? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, wow. Thank you for demonstrating that the world is full of unpleasant people. You know, use another term for that if you want. But uh, that's just wow. Yeah, yeah. I and even know. even if you think that, yeah, you know, you're allowed to think that if you want. But you, you, what? That's putting it on social media or tweeting it to the person himself. <laughs> what is wrong? the point? Yeah, that's just nasty. So, and also horribly, horribly. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with the way she looked for someone who's the point in her life she's at now i mean yeah she's 59 i mean thought she looked great yeah i don't like <laughs> i don't get this i mean it's really bad these people need to just shut up <laughs> they really do i mean if you if you're one of these people that tweets to like and let's face it they only do it to actresses they'd never do it to an act like a um a male actor because you're allowed to look what however you like um yeah, they just need to stop talking in the I world. Mean, I only do that sort of thing to Bear Grylls. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I suppose that's another thing worth talking about. The um, uh, the gender balance and stuff. You did sort of mention it. It's a lot less sexist than the original trilogy, which has, right. as, you say, as you point out, two women in it and one who has it. What, the, one of the women only has one line, like two lines. Many people died to bring you this information. Many Bothans died. Many Bothans died to bring us this information. Um, and terribly delivered as well. Like No. Yeah, it was. It was really badly delivered because it was... Um, it was delivered with too much emotion compared to okay. her previous line. It was like she was putting it on. Oh, yeah. Admiral Akbar was in the film. Yeah. And so was Nian Num. 
again, rewarding us for knowing about these characters beforehand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think when, when you had like a group of people standing around in The Force Awakens, they made a point. Well, I, I feel wrong. I feel bad saying they made a point because you don't need to make a point. But there were male and female people there, whereas yes. they just didn't think like that with the other films. Amazing like, progress. <laughs> yeah, if there's, there's, a, there's a bunch of pilots. Some of them, some of them might be women. Yeah. It's, it's like, oh well, they got a girl pilot. Well no, done. Well, yeah. um, a so they did well with the leads, obviously, the lead being a woman and a black man. But looking at the top bill cast here, it's still massively male dominated. Uh, and this, yeah, there's and I think they about- do need to start fixing that. Yeah, and and then then we then we uh, maybe we this isn't for us to talk about, but there's this uh, massive pricing price, pricing sexism. Harrison Ford paid fifty times more than the next highest paid member of the cast. I think I read that, but then that's not <laughs> yeah. that's not that is a that big issue. I mean, the X Files are just you know they just relaunched the X Files, and David Duchovny gets twice as much as Gillian Anderson. Really? I believe. I think that's right. At least twice as much, maybe four times as much. So we still live in a very broken world. Yeah, that's odd. I mean, I, in some ways, Harrison Ford was the star of the original films, and he doesn't want to do. He didn't want to do it. Yeah. So you have to pay him more to get him to do it at all. Um. So you know, I, don't, I don't know how. What would be more appropriate to compare is the uh, what? What are their names here? John Boyega. Is that how you say it? Daisy Ridley. Like Daisy Ridley versus John Boyega. What are their pays? You know, mm. Like I don't know starting that. now, both of them relatively unknown. Um, well, John Boyega was the main character in a film called Attack the Block. Which was like? Uh, oh, I remember I think, that. Yeah, was yeah. he in that? I'm pretty sure he's like the main guy in that. Yeah. Oh. So, so, so this isn't. I think I'm right. So this isn't his big break. That was his big break. But that was not. Uh... <laughs> okay, that was his small break. <laughs> yeah. That film's directed by Joe Cornish of uh, Adam and Joe, which is standard watching for myself as a <laughs> during my teenage years. Okay. Budget eight million pounds. All right. That's well, quite small, isn't it, for a film? Well, it's like a small a film. film. Yeah. So it's not... Yeah. I agree. It's not a... Yeah, he's been in a few things. Um, yeah. But I guess that's... Yeah, I don't I don't know comparing Harrison Ford's pay to anyone else makes much sense. Well, he's like, yeah, Hollywood royalty. I mean... Yeah. 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 I always like his, his interview in the uh, Sasha Baron Cohen film. Yeah. I don't think I've seen that. Oh, <laughs> uh, what's it called? Bruno. I, I, I'll tell you. I'll tell you when we're not recording, so I can't talk yeah. about it. On, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So stars. How many stars are you going to give it? I'm. Uh, yeah. I'm wavering between a six and a seven, and I think I'll go for a seven because I really liked it. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go between a seven and an eight. In a controversial move. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I've ever rated a higher film higher than you. 
You have. You gave Lucy more stars than I did. Did I? But we both. You, yeah. what, I gave it two, and you gave it one, or something like that. Uh, you gave it four, and I gave it two. Or something I gave like it that. four. Yeah, yeah. I did say at the time you'd regret it. <laughs> yeah, that's too much. Lucy was a terrible, terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I just I watched it again the other day and, uh, <laughs> and so I read our review of it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I yeah, I have to revise that down. Um I try not to be I try not to be like a IMDb rater, you know, where everything falls between a, a 6.5 and a 8. I think you mm. got to you got to try and use the spread a little bit. So there's got to mm. be four star films out there. What are they? Um but Given the expectations on this and the pressure it had and the difficulties it has, the artistic difficulties, as I said, phasing out the old characters, bringing in the new ones, keeping all the fans happy, all this stuff that had to go in, I think this was supremely well done. It was very well done for what it was. As just a film, mm. I would give it a seven, but given what it was, I'd give it an eight. We're, well, okay, that's great. That's great. Well, we're both scoring it very highly overall then. I mean, even a six is is very good score. So there we go. No, uh, I would Star say War- six is a media because it's <laughs> no, right next to no, the middle. Shut up. If you got sixty percent in exam, that's a pass. Oh that's great. That's brilliant. It's a good score. It's like eight, eight, it's nines, and tens are for it's the a best. D. Thing. It's a well, it's still a pass. <laughs> it's like it's like eight, nines, and tens are the best thing ever. I don't think it's the best thing ever. No, it's no, like no, 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 no. Nine it's is like a Simon very, Cowell. very good film. I would say, if you're going to look at the spread, like, one in ten films has to sort of be in that nine. No. One in ten? No, it's too many, isn't it? That doesn't work. Yeah. God. You never watched it. No, but you've got, to, you've got to use the spread. You've got to use the spread. Well. <laughs> so I'm going to say eight. You say eight. Yep, and you say seven. I say, I say seven. I'm going to go for seven. I said between a six and a seven and... Your eager love of Star Wars is uh... <laughs> <laughs> the fact that it didn't did it did it. I'm trying to think of it even linked to anything that's in the Clone Wars or the droids or the the uh... are these these like spin-off TV series is uh, Star Wars Rebels? No, there's no Tuwalek in it. There's no huts. No mention of of Tatooine. Tatooine wasn't even mentioned. But of course, there's the old meme of there's the desert planet. And there's the snow planet. Yeah. <laughs> and there's the forest planet. And then there's the Death yeah. Star. Because as we know, every other pla- like on Earth we have quite a lot of variety, but every other planet in the galaxy <laughs> is just one thing. And, there's, and then there's the, the ones that are inhabited by people are all city planets. There's pole-to-pole cities. Yes. Showed, I, think, I think it was actually meant to be a... Um, I was going to say an archipelago, but that's not the right term. A cluster of planets that were meant to be like the the New Republic base and uh, the centre of the New Republic. And uh, yeah, they were they were all like like Coruscant in the prequels, which of course is based on Los Angeles in Blade Runner. Yeah, in the what's now? Who's doing what now? So in the Star Wars prequels, we see all these things. There are no Star Wars prequels. In a film called uh, Star Wars Episode, respectively, 1, 2, and 3, known as uh, The Fungal Menace, Attack of the Cloonies, and Revenge of the Sith, um, there 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 are like things that are like 
overpowering, over very strong references to <laughs> to things in. Strength, <laughs> strength. Um, things that are references to things that were in other big films at the time. So, like the second one, Attack of the Clones, comes out at, or was made at the same time as Gladiator, which is like pitched as one of the biggest films of all time, huge budget, grandiose sets, and everything. And Gladiator is all about giant gladiatorial arenas. And what's the main set piece of episode two? It's a giant gladiatorial arena, which yeah. is like, ha James Cameron, take that, James Cameron. My, my arena's bigger than yours, and I've got more gladiators. Blade Runner. Uh, I forget what I was going to say there, but Coruscant, Blade Runner. It's like this giant cityscapes. Uh, and like we can do that a hundred times better. Curacao, I hope. I mean, okay, they didn't invent Curacao for the Phantom Menace. Again, goes way back in Star Wars lore, back decades back. But um, lots of interesting little things being said about the the backstory to the original Star Wars films, based on new interviews. That because they they keep going back and asking George Lucas what he thinks about the Force Awakens. He sold it to Walt Disney for however many billions of dollars. Thankfully. Yeah, and he, he's like, what, we don't care what he thinks, okay? He's And he said how he didn't like it. <laughs> and uh, and there's, oh my God, this petition to get him to direct one of them, to direct the, th- the, the third of the trilogy. Really? You know who's directing? Yeah, yeah, yep. you know, I did read about this, and I was thinking, who are these people? Yeah, they're not kids, I guess. But um, do you know <laughs> who's directing the next one? No. Oh, yeah, um, no. Good answer. Colin Trevorrow. Yes, yes, of course. That, that, I'm a little bit that, worried about that. That cinematic genius who gave us lost Jurassic uh, World. World, yeah. Jurassic World. Yeah. So what else, is, what else has he done? Uh, a film that's based on The Sound of Thunder and is called... It's a film about like time travel with like prehistoric monstery things. Um, I got the feeling that he'd done safety not guaranteed or something. Like, yep. So, home base reality show safety not guaranteed. Jurassic World. I guess he hasn't done anything. The Book of Henry. Oh, that's about Henry's cat. Jurassic World sequel. <laughs> Looking forward to that one. Um, so, are any of these previous films any good? I guess this is the question. So, safety not guaranteed. Well, safety not guaranteed. I I haven't seen it, and I've only ever read bad reviews, but I've I've heard that it's good. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, so we're done on Star Wars and that type of stuff. I also went to see The Revenants with the other day, which I really enjoyed. Um, go and see that. Yeah. Okay. Go and see The Revenant. It's a uh, yeah, it's, it's good. It's based on based on a novel, and I heard the novel's based on a true story. Although I don't know whether that's true or not. But <laughs> so. <laughs> There's no but, relation to reality whatsoever. So, so for, again, for a Tetsu podcast audience, hello out there, audience, things to look out for. Spoilers, more spoilers. CG bears, good. CG bisons, bad. Lip sync of First Nations languages, really, really bad. And I don't know why. Uh, and also look out for the bit where they had to speed up the film to get it into the right time frame because <laughs> it's this really funny bit where 
Leonardo DiCaprio's character is called Glass. Glass and someone else, they're, um, they have to like quickly leave on their horses, go past the camp. And as they do, they, for some reason, they have to speed up the footage. So they're kind of going up on their horses like really, really quickly. It doesn't look right. And I thought, that just doesn't look right. And even though we're only talking about two seconds of film, my thought process was, that doesn't look right. Who directed this? Sp- uh, somebody whose name I don't know. Okay. <laughs> because, you know, that's a, that's a thing they do, right? It's I not thought, that they had I, to speed it up. They decided to speed it up. And I and I thought, am I being, am I right? Is it is it an optical illusion? Because you know, humans and they're riding on horses. Humans and horses can sometimes move in a way that looks odd. But there's a fire in the same scene, and fire like rainwater or whatever you know moves at speed we intuitively know it's realistic or not. And it didn't. The fire's going. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, Did you get some motion blurring? Yeah, like yeah. Wow, yeah. throwing some shape. <laughs> <laughs> look, look, look at my hands. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. Um, yeah. The Gladiator had some of this in it. Sped up. Things. Gladiator's got loads of hilarious stuff in it. It's got like uh, it's meant to sort jeans. of. Got- yes, but it, no, it's deliberate. It's meant to be sort of showing panic. Sort of. Yeah, it doesn't okay. really work in my opinion. I don't think it works in Gladiator either. Because I think panic should be dropped frames or something, not sped up. Because when you're panicked, things actually slow down. You pay more attention. This but just looked something like something else weird does happen, but I don't yeah, think speeding up works. This looked like those 1920s movies where people are walking on the street at the wrong yeah, yeah. frame speed. Well, that's what uh, bits of Gladiator so. look like as well. The fight scenes they do, in, um, the battle fight scenes, some of them are fast forward. Right, right. we must stop. Yeah. Right, so let's very just impressive. let's just say our Twitter handles and then then just be done. Oh, so, sorry, I was saying very impressive because John is playing with a robot that he's constructing, which looks really cool. Are the knees too bent? I think they're probably. Um, they, I don't know. I don't think because you haven't got them going too past. I think they should be more vertical at the end of the stride. Only slightly, though. See, it gets close to vertical, but yeah. Maybe it's stalking something. Yeah, that's looking more bird-like to me than, than like, say, Tyrannosaur-like. Yeah, I was, I'm still debating what to make. I might make, a, like, a Manoraptoran. I really like that toe droop you've got going on there, though. Should it, to, to, to people who don't know what the hell we're talking about, it's a robot set of dinosaur limbs that John has uh, that has on a treadmill, and it's really great. I made it out of Lego. It's not a treadmill. It's got a like a clockwork mechanism that makes it see. Well, it looks like a treadmill. It looks like a robot animal walking on a treadmill. It does look like a robot animal. That's what I'm going to call it. Yeah. All right. Fine. Okay. So, where are you on Twitter? At um, uh, at Tezu. <laughs> oh, on the one episode. The one That's from episode. one of those silent bits in the <laughs> the Empire Strikes Back. Oh no! So um, you're quoting Empire Strikes Back in our Force Awakens. You're not even quoting Empire Strikes Back. You've got a silent bit from Empire Strikes Back in our Force Awakens episode. It was the quiet bit. Oh, that was terrible. It was when when Luke goes into 
that little cavey bit and has a fight with a the dream version of himself. And yeah. uh, and that's what Yoda says. And when he comes out, Yoda goes, <clears throat> <laughs> Your weapons. Need them. You were that. Yeah. <clears throat> so what would have been the advantage of going in that cave with no weapons? Because <laughs> okay, so Yoda seems to say a lot of stuff that just is disregarded later because who really cares? Yeah. Shut up, Yoda. What are you doing? <laughs> well, he doesn't even care. <laughs> <laughs> if you go now, you will never be ready. You, you are ready. I have teached you all you can learn. <laughs> <laughs> You've seen the Family Guy parodies of the... The, the, their parody of Return of the Jedi... Oh, for the love of Christ! Their parody of The Empire Strikes Back is called Something, Something, Something Dark Side. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> there's the, the bit when when Luke, Peter Griffin playing Luke... No, he plays Han Solo. Whatever. Chris Griffin. When he meets uh, Yoda, <laughs> Yoda says, I'm totally not Yoda. All right, I'm Yoda. <laughs> but I'm not going to teach you the ways of the Force. All right, I'll teach you the ways of the force. <laughs> it's, this is getting worse. Okay, we must stop this yep. episode. Yep, okay. Where are you on the Twitters? I'm at the John Conway. Okay, let's just finish it. Let's not do the no- normal thing. We should. No. Bye. Bye. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> Done. Done.